Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 3. For gold, for praise, for glory. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Today, we will be covering the development of English seaborne expertise in the fields of exploration, trade, and piracy. England had always been a maritime kingdom, but it was during the reign of Elizabeth that English soldiers first expanded their horizons and set their sights on the potential of the New World. English trade for the preceding centuries had been dominated by one staple, wool. Either raw or woven into cloth, wool was England's chief export for overseas trade throughout the 15th and 16th centuries. Wool would be collected in the cities of England, mostly London, and either shipped as it was or manufactured into cloth. CGA Clay, whose book, Economic Expansion and Social Change, I have made great use of here, estimated that 7,800 sacks of wool, each weighing around 364 pounds or 165 kilos, were exported per year in the 1490s. English wool was highly valued by cloth-making industries in the Netherlands and northern Italy, and much of this would find its way there for weaving and dyeing. However, most English wool found its way into English looms, and trade of English cloth was, in Clay's words, the principal export of England. As much as half of the cloth exported was undyed and plain. The process of treating cloth was complicated and required a high degree of skill. Plain cloth could be made and exported much quicker, but for much lower profit. At the beginning of the 16th century, the most important markets for English wool were, firstly, the Netherlands and the Rhineland, and then the rest of Germany, the Baltic, and even as far inland as Hungary. Until the 1550s, English cloth exports continued to rise, as their competitors on the continent struggled to compete. This changed once the factors that were negatively affecting continental merchants reached England. 
From the 1550s onward, the English world trade had peaked, and for the rest of the century, English merchants found that the game had changed. Until the midpoint of the 16th century, English cloth makers had benefited from low domestic wool prices, allowing them to keep their production costs low, and so undercut their mainland rivals. Once England caught up with these changes in price, the damage began to be felt. Another factor in the drop in wool exports were changes in fashion. In the second half of the 16th century, but at various times and to different extents, thick, heavy English clothes became less popular. On the contrary, lighter clothes became much more popular, with textile producers in the low countries adjusting to the new fashions. English producers adapted too, of course, but at a much slower rate, and even by 1600 had not adequately caught up to Dutch manufacturers. In addition to gradual changes in the economy, such as fashion and price increases, there were much more dramatic reasons for a drop in the English wool trade. The Company of Merchant Adventurers of London, which dominated wool exports, had chosen the Dutch city of Antwerp as its staple port, It was a short, relatively simple journey from the Thames estuary to the port, which offered preferential tariffs and had built up a significant community of English merchants. From Antwerp, imported English wool, both raw and woven, would either be transported to other Dutch cities for processing or for sale, or shipped down the rivers to Germany and afar. It was a good system, profitable for both the English exporters and those who imported their wool. However, In 1563, the governments of the Netherlands and England became hostile, and for over a year, trade between the two was blocked. In the meantime, the Company of Merchant Adventurers attempted to migrate their staple port to the town of Emden, but it lacked the infrastructure and benefits that Antwerp enjoyed. Luckily for the Merchant Adventurers, relations soon improved and they could return to their favoured city, only for a crisis to strike from 1569. England and Spain, the overlord of the Netherlands, had suffered a breakdown of diplomacy, and again, trade between England and the Dutch was officially forbidden. This had the added drawback of blocking trade with the Mediterranean. Almost all trade routes were overland, through Habsburg territory, and so were closed to English traders. During this break, the merchant adventurers moved to the German city of Hamburg, and stayed a lot longer. The economic prosperity of Antwerp required stability and security, and the growing Dutch revolt against Spanish rule was hardly helping. By the time that a group of mutinous Spanish soldiers sacked Antwerp in 1576, its economy was dying. The pillaging simply put the nails into its wool-lined coffin, as well as the coffins of the thousands of citizens killed in the Spanish fury. When the Anglo-Spanish War got into full swing, trade between Elizabeth's England and Philip's Spanish Empire would end for a generation. Similar trading difficulties arose in France, the other major recipient for English wool. The loss of Calais in 1558, which had been the staple port of England since its capture centuries before, was something of an upset for the merchants of the staple, a rival guild to the merchant adventurers. They had been based in Calais for almost two centuries, and now moved their operations to the city of Bruges. When France underwent the wars of religion, trade with England's neighbour ground to a near halt, as economic chaos led only to further chaos. Now, 
English merchants did not sit idly by as their traditional markets were closed to them, or their customers went elsewhere. The Low Countries in France may have been the most popular destination for English goods, but they were far from the only one. In 1551, a small trading flotilla was dispatched to Morocco, the Muslim kingdom immediately across the Straits of Gibraltar. At the time, the dominant power was the Saadi dynasty, who would claim the title of Sultan in 1554. The English began a regular, but small-scale, trade relationship. English cloth would be traded to the Moroccans in return for sugar and other luxuries. Two years later, another fleet was dispatched to journey even further south, past the Sahara Desert and along the coast of West Africa. This fleet had come in search of other luxuries. Gold, ivory and pepper, among others. The English would find that they had a weak hand. The Portuguese were far ahead of them and had established fortified trading posts. With no one in England willing to cover the expense of constructing and maintaining fortifications of their own, the English merchants were forced to deal with Portuguese middlemen. Despite this, Throughout the 1550s and the 1560s, the English would be the most active traders in the region, aside from the Portuguese and Spanish. English merchants and sailors did not only venture south. The markets of the east to Cathay, China and India were an attractive prospect. The Portuguese dominated the southern route around Africa, and the Spanish the western across the great oceans of the Atlantic and the Pacific. East led into the Baltic Sea, a region well known to English traders and decidedly not a route to China. That left the North. The Northeast, to be precise. In 1551, the Crown incorporated the Company of Merchant Adventurers to New Lands, which financed an expedition in 1553, for the discovery of sea, of isles, lands, territories, dominions, and seigniories unknown. The expedition of three ships, led by Richard Chancellor and Hugh Willoughby, set off on a quest to find the North East Passage. The three ships were separated during a storm in the North Sea, with two rejoining under the command of Willoughby. Chancellor's ship rounded the North Cape and entered the White Sea, landing near current-day Arkhangelsk in August of 1553. Chancellor was the expedition's navigator, and his separation appears to have been fatal for the other two ships. Willoughby entered the White Sea, only to turn around in September and attempt to winter on the coast of Lapland. The seas were full of fish, and the land seemed full of wildlife. What could possibly go wrong? In 1554, a group of fishermen found the frozen corpses of the crews of the Bonner Esperanza and the Bonner Confidentia. Among them was Sir Hugh Willoughby. The last entry in his journal recorded that a scouting party had returned from a mission to find a local settlement and hadn't found one. Going by a will found on one of the bodies, some of the men had survived until January. For Chancellor's crew, they wintered at the port of St. Nicholas, and were provided with supplies by the town authorities while Chancellor travelled inland. Without any idea of where Willoughby and the rest of the expedition was, he had little desire to continue his search for the Northeast Passage without support. He headed to Moscow. Moscow was the capital of the newly born Tsardom of Russia, or the Tsardom of Muscovy, and its ruler was Tsar Ivan IV Rurik, known better by his sobriquet, which is often translated into English as the Terrible. Chancellor met with either the Tsar's official or with Ivan himself, and the meeting appears to have gone well. 
No records survive, but Chancellor wrote that the English were granted the right to trade with the Russians. Chancellor returned to England in 1554, and the Muscovy Company was founded to facilitate this trade. Chancellor would make another voyage in 1555, with paperwork from the English court to be ratified by their Russian counterparts. He stayed in Moscow over winter, and on his return voyage, Chancellor was to recover Willoughby's ships, still off the coast of Lapland, and transport the Tsar's diplomat, Osip Napea, to England. Only one ship would survive the journey. Both of Willoughby's were lost near Norway, and Chancellor's was wrecked off the coast of Aberdeenshire, Scotland, and Chancellor was drowned at sea. Napea later memorialised Chancellor, recording that the captain had given his own life to save the Russian ambassadors. The vast majority of the crews of these wrecked ships were also lost at sea. Chancellor and Willoughby had failed to discover a northeastern passage to the east, but had instead found a profitable trading and diplomatic relationship with the growing power of Eurasia. It only cost them their lives and the lives of those under their command. The Muscovy Company would never find the Northeast Passage, eventually giving up after multiple expeditions in the 1580s. But they did attempt to extend their trade route from Russia into Persia. Their Persian interests were overtaken by the Turkey Company, established in 1581, which would rival the Venice Company in the Mediterranean until both merged into the Levant Company in 1592. The Eastland Company gained the monopoly for Baltic trade in 1579, which had grown increasingly valuable as the years went on. Clay argues that it was the improving economy within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that meant there was a market there for English cloth, and dyed English cloth at that. This was not a new market like Russia was. The Baltic had always been a known importer of English goods, but the value and quantity was unquestionably growing. Now, I feel like I should explain what exactly a merchant or trading company is, considering we've now mentioned half a dozen of them, and we'll see a lot of them in the future. Trading companies were not unique to England, but their operations and aims differed depending on their country of origin. Generally speaking, trading companies were granted a government monopoly on a certain trade good or a certain region. Plantation companies, like those used during the Plantation of Ireland, and will be used in Virginia, were granted the right to operate in a certain geographic location and essentially govern it. Settling colonists, enforcing laws, collecting taxes and increasing trade were all under their remit, with the expectation that this would bring profit to the investors. The investment came from the state, economic elites like merchants or nobility, and the members of the company itself. Dutch companies were mostly commercial entities essentially autonomous. French companies were direct extensions of state power. English companies were a bit of both, motivated by private profit and state interest. Companies operated unlike anything resembling a modern corporation. They didn't look for profit in increasing efficiency or lowering good prices or something like that. They operated more bluntly. There was a fixed amount of wealth in the world, which was found in transporting and selling goods. Taking these goods from others, or reducing costs through forced labour, were the only ways to improve profit. When the existence of the North East Passage was ruled out in the 1580s, attention shifted to finding the North West Passage. 
Francis Walsingham, one of the most important courtiers during Elizabeth's reign, sponsored a number of voyages to find a route around the northern coast of modern Canada. Much like with the Northeast Passage, the expeditions found that the landmasses and ice flows made such a trip impossible. However, during this time, the potential of the Newfoundland fisheries became clear, and by the accession of James in 1603, over a hundred ships sailed to the area, and friction grew with the French over fishing rights in the region. In 1591, the first attempt by an English fleet to reach the east set out. They sought to travel the known way, along the coast of West Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope. What they got instead was a disaster. They were becalmed for a month, had to send one ship home after losses from scurvy, one ship was lost with all hands in a storm, while in another storm, four men were killed by lightning. An officer and 30 men were killed in what C.F. Beckenham calls an affray when they stopped at the Comoros, They were forced to get their ships refitted at Zanzibar, lost more men from illness on the way to Penang in Malaysia, and then were forced home by a mutinous crew. That wasn't the end either, as they were becalmed once again for a month and a half, whereupon they landed in the West Indies to gather supplies. The leader of the expedition, James Lancaster, was ashore when the remaining crew sailed the ship away and surrendered to the Spanish leaving Lancaster to catch a lift back to Europe with the French. He returned to England in May of 1594, three years after leaving, without any ships, most of the crew, and absolutely zero profit. One thing the voyage had made clear was that the Portuguese dominance of the trade route was not invulnerable, and in 1600 a group of London merchants formed yet another company. It was to be led by John Watts, a famous privateer, and its leadership included multiple people with a history of maritime and land combat. It was meant to be a trading company, first and foremost, but was authorised to take military action should, quote, any opportunity be offered without prejudice or hazard, end quote. This became possibly the single most famous and influential merchant company in history, the English and later British East India Company. We will see them again in the future. From the 1560s, the English attempted to break into one of the most lucrative markets which had been opened with the Spanish and Portuguese conquests, the Atlantic slave trade. Between 1562 and 1568, an English admiral by the name of Sir John Hawkins, cousin to Sir Francis Drake, set off on voyages funded by London magnates, courtiers and the Queen herself. His intention was to acquire slaves in West Africa, either purchased from the local rulers and Portuguese middlemen, or by the use of force against the same. During this first voyage, at the head of at least three ships and a hundred men, Hawkins attacked and captured a Portuguese slave ship, and continued its journey to the Americas. On his arrival on the island of Hispaniola, he avoided the local capital of Santo Domingo, and instead offloaded 301 enslaved people in the northern ports of Isabella, Puerto de Plata, and Monte Cristi. Hawkins' first voyage was a success, in the eyes of his investors at least, and a second voyage was commissioned. This second voyage was also a success, and Hawkins was accompanied by Drake as he sailed along the coast of West Africa, before heading across the Atlantic with a new human cargo captured in raids. 400 had survived the journey when they were sold along the coast of modern Venezuela. Quote, Sir Juan Hawkins, 
end quote, received a commendation from local Spanish officials for his pleasant transactions. Hawkins' third voyage was less successful. It began much like the first, with the capture of a Portuguese slave ship and its cargo of 400 sols. The intention was to sell them at one of the ports he had visited on his previous journey. Instead, Hawkins was engaged by a Spanish fleet at the Battle of San Juan de Alua, and in this battle all but two of the English ships were destroyed. Hawkins commanded the Minion, while his cousin, Drake, sailed the Judith. For one reason or another, overnight the Judith, again commanded by Sir Francis Drake, a cousin of Hawkins, sailed away, leaving Hawkins and 320 crew behind. Hawkins managed to return to England by January of 1569. He had lost 90 crew to Spanish imprisonment, and abandoned a Thurva 96 near a settlement in the Gulf of Mexico. They were tried by the Inquisition for heresy. Arriving in Cornwall with only 15 men, Hawkins wrote to the Queen, declaring that, quote, All is lost, save only honour. Which is definitely one way to look at a disastrous slaving trip. The voyage had been, in almost every element, a complete disgrace. Almost being the key word here. Despite returning with barely more than a dozen crew, nearly all of the treasure gained from the voyage had been returned on the Judith and the Minion. This was the end, temporarily at least, of large-scale English involvement in the Atlantic slave trade. Neither England nor Spain would forget the Battle of San Juan de Alua, and when Portugal allowed the English to trade in the Azores and Madeiras in 1571, English activity around Guinea fell to basically nothing. But the profit to be gained from Spanish America and the Spanish Lake of the Atlantic were too great to pass up. Hawkins' successes were proof of that. A new source of income attracted the interest of England's investors and the cash-strapped Elizabeth, who commissioned her subjects to prowl the seas for Spanish wealth. They called themselves privateers. Their targets called them pirates. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Between 1568 and 1585, there were at least 14 raids by the English against Spanish interests in the Caribbean. This was before the period when both the English and Spanish governments could still pretend to be at peace. The Anglo-Spanish War, while undeclared and therefore difficult to date the start of, began in earnest in 1585. As we shall see next episode, Anglo-Spanish relations were complicated. English behaviour was ever so slightly hostile, somehow Philip of Spain was irritated by, you know, unsanctioned trade with Spanish America by English ships, which could be considered smuggling, and then this campaign of deliberately targeted piracy. The most successful privateer of this period was John Hawkins' second cousin, Sir Francis Drake. Drake is one of the most famous figures from the Elizabethan era, usually in combination with Shakespeare and Sir Walter Raleigh, and it's easy to see why. 
1572, Drake planned to capture the annual shipment of silver from Spanish Peru. His plan was to attack the convoy before it reached the port and the safety of the ships. Drake found allies for his raid from both a community of escaped slaves, the Negros Cimarrones, as well as from the French corsair Guillaume Le Tetsu. Apologies for the pronunciation of both of those names, I almost certainly got them wrong. His combined raiding party ambushed the mile-long convoy in the interior of Panama, and made off with enough treasure to last a lifetime. Literally. Professor Benjamin Thomas writes that, quote, Every member of Drake's company received enough booty to become rich men for life, end quote. To the Spanish, he was the Drake, and his fame in England, already significant, exploded. One of those rich men, John Oxenham, tried to outshine his former captain in 1576 by crossing the Isthmus of Panama and secretly constructing a ship in the Pacific. In theory, this would prevent Spanish garrisons or patrols discovering him as he sailed around the southern tip of South America, and would allow him to strike at the unsuspecting Pacific treasure fleet. In reality, Oxenham was captured by the Spanish and hanged as a pirate and a heretic in the Peruvian capital of Lima, and that was the end of that. In 1577, Drake then topped his previous achievement by sailing straight through the Straits of Magellan, a narrow passage through the archipelago that makes up the Tierra del Fuego, the southern tip of South America. Once he was in the Pacific, Drake set to his bloody but profitable work. He raided shipping and sacked settlements from Chile to North America, before crossing the Pacific and returning to England laden with treasures and riches. In doing so, he followed in the wake of the namesake of the Straits, Ferdinand Magellan, and completed the second circumnavigation of the globe. The idea of occupying parts of South America had been proposed in 1574, but Elizabeth had rejected the idea. At the time, the Queen was attempting a rapprochement with the Spanish, and such a brazen incursion into Philip II's sphere of influence was considered too diplomatically damaging. Yet by the time Drake departed England for his famous voyage, relations were again deteriorating. Drake's official reason for undertaking the voyage was, aside from loot, to scout the terrain of the New World for prospective English colonies and for native allies against the Spanish. Between Drake's return to England in 1578 and the signing of the Treaty of Nonsuch in 1585, English overseas ambitions only grew, while Anglo-Spanish relations deteriorated. In 1579, Hawkins presented the Queen with a plan to capture the Spanish treasure fleet. He was unsuccessful, and in 1581 he took part in a raid on the Azores. Portugal was now part of the Iberian Union, now another part of the composite monarchy of Philip II, because the Habsburgs. This brought Portuguese overseas possessions under Spanish dominance for the next 50 years, which also made them viable targets for English privateers. A pretender to the Portuguese throne, Don Antonio, sheltered in England and commissioned his hosts to target Portuguese shipping. Every year during the 1580s and the 1590s, between one and 200 ships prowled the Atlantic and Caribbean for Spanish prizes. In 1585, Anglo-Spanish relations reached their nadir, and open and undisguised conflict broke out. The Treaty of Nonsuch was signed between England and the Dutch United Provinces, and English soldiers fought Spanish interests on the continent as well as at sea. 
Drake conducted a damaging raid on the Spanish Caribbean, burning much of Cartagena and Santo Domingo, and plundered the Cape Verde Islands. In 1587, he led an attack on the strategic port of Cardiz on the southern coast of Spain. While the English succeeded in burning many ships, they did not capture the city this time, and the raid only delayed the Spanish response. The first of four armadas, and the most famous set off in 1588 with 130 ships and 18,000 soldiers, intent on ending the irritating English raids. It was a narrow escape for the English, and none of the later attempts in 1596, 1597 and 1599 were successful either. The English led their own armada in turn, which met some but far from all of its aims. In 1596, a fleet of 40 warships with a combined Anglo-Dutch force of 15,000 soldiers attacked and occupied Cadiz, destroying almost 200 Spanish ships at port and holding the city for two weeks. In 1596, Sir Walter Raleigh argued that English raids on Spanish possessions and convoys were a form of self-defence, and he was granted a commission by Elizabeth to attack the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean. He stated that the Spanish had lost their right to the New World because of the atrocities they had conducted against the indigenous peoples. How about that for some historical irony? Raleigh set out to discover the fantastical empire of El Dorado, quote, I will hope that these provinces, and that empire now by me discovered, shall suffice to enable Her Majesty and the whole kingdom with no less quantities of treasure than the King of Spain hath in all the Indias, east and west. End quote. His hope was that El Dorado would give the English the resources and manpower needed to challenge Spain's hegemony over the New World. He made three expeditions to try and find the City of Gold. No prizes for guessing how that went. The Anglo-Spanish War would drag on until after the accession of James, and it was popular. A primarily maritime conflict against a rich but spread-thin enemy was a chance for incredible profit. Appleby estimates that the annual amount seized from Spanish and Portuguese holdings was at least £200,000. As we shall see when the narrative begins, Many English mariners and nobles wanted the gravy boat to keep on sailing. Before we bring this episode to an end, it's only right that we cover the demise of two of the main characters, so to speak. Sir John Hawkins and Sir Francis Drake. Conveniently for us, although perhaps so for them, they died within months of each other. Both Hawkins and Drake were, you will be shocked to hear, leading an expedition to attack Spanish America and steal lots of shiny things. This particular campaign wasn't going well, and after repeatedly failing to capture the port of San Juan, Puerto Rico, both Hawkins and Drake fell ill. The illness was most likely dysentery. Hawkins perished first, on the 12th of November 1595, and was buried at sea. Drake survived for two and a half months before he too passed. He was interred in full armour, within a lead-lined coffin, and then, against his wishes to be buried on land, but likely with much respectful mourning and gravitas, chucked overboard into Portobello Bay. England had always been a maritime kingdom, but the decades of seaborne conflict, most of it undeclared, and the decline of the trading status quo had forced some significant changes. Over 50 years, English mariners had vastly expanded their horizons. 
regular merchant fleets made their ways to Russia, to Morocco, to the eastern Mediterranean. Privateers prowled the coast of West Africa, the Atlantic and the Pacific, trained through experience in ship-to-ship combat and coastal raids. These two professions were often conducted by the same crews and the same ships, and backed by the same investors. By the turn of the 17th century, England had a merchant marine fleet of hundreds of ships, crewed by experienced sailors who could traverse the vast Atlantic proficiently, if not entirely in safety. By creating significant profit for investors, the war had concentrated a vast amount of wealth into the pockets of London's merchants, and who were on the lookout for further opportunities. The pressure placed on Spanish interests in the New World, not solely by the English but also by the French and Dutch, required Spain to prioritise its defences in the Caribbean, New Granada and New Spain, opening up North and South America and the Lesser Antilles to other European powers. The last half-century had shown English merchants and nobles the strategic and material value to be found in the Americas. As we shall see, they will not ignore this potential wealth. Thank you for listening to Pax Britannica, and to Sounds Like an Earful for providing much of the music in today's episode. Next time, we will be looking at Elizabeth's foreign policy. How did the traditional Anglo-Spanish alliance break down so completely? How were relations between England's historic enemies, France and Scotland? What was Philip of Spain doing while English privateers pillaged his territories and captured his ships? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.